1: and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him.
0: Good morning. Great to be with you. My name is Dave. I have been called St. Dave of Belmont in the past, uh, two issues with that. The first one is, we're all saints. Those who believe in Jesus are all saints, so that's good news. The second one is, I live in Grovedale. And uh, so I just wanted to correct the record there, but we are in John chapter 11 this morning, and uh, it'd be great to have your Bible open. You could Google John chapter 11 if you need to, but uh, we're going to tackle the whole chapter if we can, or at least the first 45 verses, more than was in the Bible reading, so please Do have a Bible open, and I am going to pray as we launch in. So let's pray. Great God who brings sight to the blind, we ask that you would do it again. As we open your word, would you help us see that we might see Jesus and believe in him. And we pray this. In his name and all of God's people said, Amen. A few things to know about me. The first one is I'm the youth pastor here. The second one is I live in Grovedale. And the third one is I love golf. I love almost everything about golf. If you don't know that yet, now you do. And you really should know that about me by now. But I have a theory, having played golf for a while, I've developed this theory that if you play golf with somebody four times you will learn all of their swear words. <laughs> That's all time. Four times, you will learn all of their naughty language. And uh, there's a guy at a club I used to be a member at named Sam. Sam was great, fun, he was about five foot nothing and, and just wouldn't ever stop talking. And every time I played with Sam, I learned some new words. <laughs> uh, but it was really interesting over the four rounds I played with Sam as my vocabulary increased... Just how many of his words would borrow from faith. It was fascinating. He'd say, God, this, or or, God, damn that, or something, something, Jesus Christ. He'd speak about heaven, he'd speak about hell. Mother Mary made the occasional appearance. And over those four rounds, I became pretty convinced that Sam is not very religious. It was a few years ago, uh, it was a Sunday morning. When we'd we'd finished golf, we went into the clubhouse for a drink and Sam's phone rang. And so he went outside to take the call and and his face went blank. It, It was the phone call nobody wants. The call to let him know that his son, who was in his early 20s at the time, had been in a tragic car accident and had lost his life. Nobody knows what to say in that moment. He didn't hang around long after that, but over the weeks that followed, the golf club became quite an important community for Sam and his family as he tried to pull the pieces of his life back together. And still to this day, every year, Sam now hosts Family Day. Once a year, he hosts Family Day where you bring your family along to golf. We have a meal together. And every year, Sam gets up and he talks through tears about his experience and about how his son is in a better place, how he's looking down on us and smiling. And you've got to remember, Sam and really most of the guys at this club normally only lean on Christianity when they need a swear word. But suddenly, Sam finds himself borrowing from faith a great deal. When death enters the picture, even the roughest and toughest guys I know are just overcome by longing, a longing for hope, a longing for help, and a longing for life. Thank God for John chapter 11. As we dive into this passage of Scripture, I've got three headings to help us through. The first one is this, the moment of death. It's at the beginning of John chapter 11 when Jesus receives the call that nobody wants. His good friend Lazarus is sick and on the doorstep of death. And so eventually Jesus makes his way to where Lazarus and his family are. They're nervous to go, as are Jesus' disciples, because there people want Jesus killed. But they go all the same, and when he arrives, Lazarus has been dead for four days. He meets Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, and And they say, Lord, if you had been here, he would not have died. After all, here is the man who can bring sight to the blind and and help the lame to walk. He surely could have done something for Lazarus too. But here we are in the grief of death, and Jesus says there's still hope. And Mary and Martha are good Jews. They say, we know. There is a resurrection coming where all people will rise on that last day, but but it seems, as you dive into this story, Jesus is talking about something else, something more immediate, something more significant. Jesus looks around this scene, this pseudo-funeral. The family of Lazarus, the, the friends, Jesus' followers, And he sees the grief. He sees the devastation that death leaves in its wake and he weeps. He weeps. And then he says, open the two. And they say, are you sure? He's been dead a while. There's an odor to the great delight of preachers everywhere. The King James Version translates that as he stinketh. But they follow Jesus' instructions as they've learned to do by now. And and then we get to verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And he does. And that's the story. Now, at one level, it's a very simple story. Lazarus dies, and Jesus fixes it. Which points to something amazing, I think. Through this series, we've looked at the seven signs of Jesus in John's gospel. We've seen that Jesus can feed Thousands, Not just the people in front of him for now, though. In a way, that means they will never go hungry again. Jesus can turn water into wine and bring joy where there is lack. Jesus can heal the lame and he can bring sight to the blind. But, but this is next level. John 11 takes it up a notch as Jesus brings the dead back to life, which is, again, a sign remember what a sign is. Right? It's more than a miracle. It's a, an act that points to something beyond itself, a, a significant moment. And it's not hard to see what this sign points to. And Jesus even tells us earlier in the story in verse 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus has the power over death. He holds the power over over death. That's huge. That here someone has the keys to resurrection. And we see it in part. In this moment of death, as Lazarus comes out of the tomb, but but we see it in full when Jesus himself rises from the dead, never to die again. And as he does, he, he extends the most extraordinary invitation to all of us to join him in that, to enjoy triumph over the tragedy of death. For whoever believes in him, though he shall die yet, shall he live. I want to say this morning that is one of the most powerful ideas in all of human history. Luc Ferry is a French philosopher. This is him, and he looks, well, he looks exactly as you'd imagine a French philosopher should look. <laughs> He's quite a big deal in France. He's kind of like the Jordan Peterson of France. And here it wrote a great book called A Brief History of Thought. It's really wonderful. I recommend you pick up a copy. He he outlines in this book some of the major moments in human intellectual history. He covers the Greeks, he goes through Buddhism, humanism, existentialism, postmodernism. He just, all the hits are there, right? and he's a humanist himself, which means he's an atheist. He has no belief in any kind of God. And, and in a really fascinating beginning to this book, he begins by saying that all philosophy and all religion are trying to do the same thing at, at their heart. They're all trying to answer the question, what do we do with our mortality? What do we do with the fact that our lives end? Death comes to us all. So how do you handle that when it arrives? And then through the book, he goes through all the different approaches that humans have come up to when it comes to this question of death, Buddhism, postmodernism modernism but, but in a stunning moment of honesty, about halfway through the book, he turns to Christianity and he says this, I grant you that amongst the available doctrines of salvation, nothing can compare with Christianity. He goes on, the Christian response to mortality, for believers at least, is without question the most effective of all responses. It would seem to be the only version of salvation that enables us not only to transcend the fear of death, but also to beat death itself. And you read this by this atheist philosopher, and you can just tell, He's longing for this to be true. In fact, his main problem with it is it seems too good to be true. But throughout the book, faced with the question of death, he is longing for hope and longing for help and desperate for life. And then John 11 steps onto the stage and says, those longings can be met. Jesus has that power, and in him, the greatest question is answered. The great tragedy is triumphed over, and this is what Christians believe, that Jesus rose from the dead, and we will too. It's what leads Paul to say with like a borderline cheeky attitude, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? in one of the great acts of bible translation ever tim keller looks at that passage and he says the best translation is dear death nye, 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 nye. <laughs> and i think that captures the christian answer there's a triumph over death that means it's not our great tragedy at least not in the same way. We don't celebrate death because it does not belong here. It's an unwelcome intrusion into our existence and it does leave devastation behind it. But, but we do not fear death either because we know someone who can triumph over it and he has. And so with all of that wonderful truth in mind, with all of that hope, with all of that possibility, I'm left with just one question for John chapter 11. Why does Jesus weep? Why does Jesus weep? Is it because death is a tragedy that leaves devastation in its wake? Yes, it is. It's a deep darkness that doesn't belong, but but even so, before Jesus arrives at the scene of his weeping, it's very clear in John chapter 11 that he knows exactly what's about to happen next. In verse 4 of chapter 11, when Jesus heard the news of Lazarus' sickness, he says, this illness does not lead to death. In verse 11, he says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. In verse 23, he says to his sister, your brother will rise again. He knows what happens next, and and yet when he arrives, he weeps. In verse 36, the Jews said, see how he loved him which I think is part of the reason Jesus weeps, because he's sympathetic, because he knows the full human experience, and he weeps with those who weep. He's so aligned with his friends that their grief becomes his grief. He's so loving of Lazarus that the tears flow freely, and there's something beautiful about that, but there's something puzzling about it too, because he knows that this death Is about to be fixed. He knows quite obviously what he's about to do, and as you read the text closely, even the people there start to ask questions. Some see Jesus weep and say, see how he loved him, and others say, hold on a second. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Couldn't he have... Done something they ask it and they're right he could what's more he actively chose not to and as the reader we might well ask isn't Jesus about to do something about this we know how this ends so why does he weep and that brings us to our second heading the moments of dissonance. Dissonance is a super cool buzzword at the moment in education. Any kind of adult education is all about dissonance. As you try and teach young people the Bible, dissonance is like the cutting edge of youth ministry research, as far as I can tell. And and the idea of dissonance is you want the moment that does not make sense. If I was to explain it using music, right? Bear with me. This is resonance, which is the opposite of dissonance. It all makes sense. It goes where you think it should go. It finishes how you're hoping it will finish. That's resonance. This is dissonance. (laughs) You think you know where it's about to go, and then it goes in a completely different direction, and there's a moment of confusion, a moment of discomfort, a moment of dissonance, and it's in that moment that growth takes place. That's where you begin to uncover a new understanding. Dissonance is really significant for learning and and it's really significant for this passage because those moments of dissonance litter the story of John chapter 11. John sprinkles moments of dramatic dissonance throughout the narrative, which, which cause us to ask questions and look closer and I think... Lead us towards a new understanding. I've got three moments of dissonance. The first one is in verse 5. Jesus hears of this illness. And then verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Jesus loves this family. That much is clear. But because he loves them, he hears of this illness and he does nothing. He stays exactly where he is. For two days. And only then he says, let us go to Judea. Why is that? It was worth knowing that uh, there was a belief which had emerged in the culture of the time that as someone died, their soul hovered over their body for about three days. It was nearby, just in case something happened by way of resuscitation. But for Jesus to heal a man then who'd been four days dead means he was proper dead. This is not a medical intervention. This is something far greater than that. There's a second moment of dissonance in verse 14. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. Here's a man who could have done something, and yet he's glad he was not there. Curiouser and curiouser. So why does Jesus weep? I think more than the tragedy of death, it's the tragedy of unbelief. He weeps over their despair in the face of death. Their lack of hope Even in the moment of the miracle, where he raises Lazarus from the dead, there's a a hint of dissonance as he prays, not just to be heard by his father, but by his disciples who are struggling for hope. Verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave. A stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odour, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and then comes the dissonance. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe you have sent me. Jesus' great concern in this passage is for the belief of the people around him. Which makes sense. This is what the signs in John are for. These things are written that you may believe that jesus is the christ the son of god and by believing have life in his name and so when it comes to death i think our french philosopher friend is right that resurrection is the best answer but he's wrong when it comes to what the big question is all about the biggest question we face is not mortality. It's belief. It's not a question of what you do with death. Now, a far bigger question is, what do you do with Jesus? Because he claims to have power over death, to be able to fix it. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, I'd love to speak to you for a moment. And firstly, I want to say it's so great that you're here. Like, I really mean that. Sundays are just better when you're with us. So welcome. And if I may, I'd love to ask you two questions in light of John chapter 11 and the hope of resurrection. The first one is, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus can raise the dead? Because if the answer is yes you're much closer to being a Christian than you might realize. And there is nothing, no sin, no brokenness, nothing in your past, nothing in your present that will stop Jesus welcoming you if you come to him. Do you believe this? If the answer's no, you're totally entitled to that position, but I'd love to ask you another question. Do you want to? do you want to believe this? And I don't don't mean to suggest for a second that wishing something like this to be true makes it so. We're not into wish fulfillment. I'm not saying that Jesus' claim is those who believe in a happy ending will get one. He says those who believe in me will have resurrection life so I'm not asking, do you want it to be true and therefore it is? It's true or it's not, just like everything. You should investigate the evidence. But when I ask you, do you want it to be true? I'm asking you, do you borrow from faith in the face of death? Do you find yourself needing there to be a good place? Or a way of someone looking down on us or a higher being or a sense of justice and mercy and peace. If you do, what do those longings tell you? What do they tell you about how the world works? What do they tell you about the fact the fact that, that death is not a normal part of life and we shouldn't accept it as one what do those longings tell you ab- about what you were made for that that you feel somehow entitled to eternity what do those longings tell you and once more what if they could be met Jesus offers that. Do you believe this? That's for those who are not Christian, but for those of us who are, what what about us? Where does this lead us? How does this help us live? Well, it would make sense that when you solve death, that has a lot of implications, (laughs) That changes everything for every aspect of life. And so as the band comes up, there was lots of places we could go. How do you do funerals as a Christian? How do you do sickness or suffering as a Christian? But but I want to narrow it down even further. I, I want to try and stick the landing in a very specific time and place with our last heading. I want to talk about the resurrection and Christmas lunch. Next week in different ways different places different times many most all of us will gather around some sort of table for some sort of meal and in that moment the resurrection changes everything some of us this year will have to pull up a table uh, pull up a chair at the table for grief because we are all too aware that there is someone missing. Maybe death has separated us. In that moment, the resurrection changes everything, because there's hope. Maybe broken relationships have separated us. In that moment, the resurrection changes everything, because God can do anything. He's in the business of restoration, forgiveness, and bringing life. The resurrection makes all the difference to that empty chair. It makes all the difference to the full chairs as well. As Christians, we approach Christmas lunch with a kind of Intentionality, maybe even an urgency, because we have the best story. We've got the answers to the biggest questions, and our friends and family, well, well, we love them. And so we want them to know it too, don't we? And so we speak of the good news of Jesus, and we never, ever give up. We never stop praying. We never stop speaking of the good news of Jesus because we know God brings sight to the blind. He brings life to the dead. And so we persevere that he might do it again for your father, your daughter, your brother, your sister. That loved one who seems so far off Lazarus was further off, and Jesus fixed it. And so we do not give up. The resurrection changes everything about Christmas lunch. Perhaps more than all of that, though, as Christians, the resurrection means we actually enjoy Christmas. In the midst of the silliness of the season, in the middle of the weariness, of the world. Christians take time for joy. We love Christmas. And if you think we love Christmas because we happen to like turkey and Mariah Carey, those things are fine. But that's not it. If you think Christians love Christmas because we like generosity and we like family... Those things are good, but that's not it either. We love Christmas because Jesus came and he saved our lives. So we gather and we celebrate with other people who believe it too. We gather and we tell each other the old, old story We sing, we sing, joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let every heart prepare him room. For these things are written that we may believe. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, have life in his name. So friends, let's stand and let's sing of that hope. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.